tonight, I just want to kind of review. Um, do you ever have just a tough week, like a crazy week? I mean, I think we all have, right? Um, and I thought about that as I was preparing tonight. And we're here to celebrate Good Friday. And this is really the, the day where all the events in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, the 33-some years he spent here, basically, this is the day that it all led to. Um, from the day he breathed his first gasp of air, I honestly believe Jesus' eyes were focused upon this day and what he would accomplish by sacrificing his own life in our place as our substitute, as payment for the debt of our sin. We owe a debt that we could never pay on our own. And so God came up with a way, substitutionary death, of the perfect Son of God, that he could pay the debt for us. He took upon himself all of the sins of all those who ever put their faith and trust in Christ and will ever put their faith and trust in Christ. And he bore the wrath of God for those sins. And this is really the, the culmination, you could say, of a very busy week for Jesus. I mean, all you have to do is look through the Gospels to see what was going on. And I just want to review some of those events shortly. On Monday, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as recorded in Matthew 21. Now, some of you may say, well, wait, I thought that was on Sunday. No, <laughs> no. Um, it happened on Monday. If you line everything up, date-wise and everything else. We call it Palm Sunday. We celebrate it on a Sunday. But it actually happened on Monday. And it tells us in Matthew 21, verses 6 to 9, it says, The disciples went and did just as Jesus has instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt. He told them where to find it. And he laid their coats on him, on them, and he sat on the coats. And it says, Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, <clears throat> and others were cutting branches from the trees, palm trees, no doubt, that's where we get Palm Sunday, and spreading them <clears throat> in the road. And the crowds were going ahead of him, and those who were following him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This event is recorded in the Gospels clearly and during this last week of his life here on earth, Jesus and his disciples were traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. That was tradition. That was what they were to do. And they arrived Monday at Bethany, six days before the Passover, to stay with the friends that they had there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And on the Jewish day, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry, it's recorded as Nisan not the car, but the month in the Jewish calendar, Nisan 10. And Exodus 12.3 tells us that this is the exact day when the Jewish households were to select a lamb for the Passover. Amazing. So on that day, the day of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which was on a Monday, Christ was presenting himself to Israel as their Passover lamb. Zechariah 9.9 provides a prophecy concerning this. It prophesied that Israel's future king would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the crowds recognized Jesus' triumphal entry as a fulfillment of this prophecy. 
many years before Christ did this. It was prophesied as much of his life was in the word of God. And so they cast their coats on the ground and they spread out these palm branches before Jesus. It's an ancient custom in their culture. And it was a custom that basically said they were honoring a king. It showed humility before the king. And the multitude shouted Hosanna, which means what? Save now. That's what Hosanna means. And they quoted Psalm 118.26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the disciples, they thought that they were going to Jerusalem for the coronation of Jesus as king. (laughs) That's what they thought. They didn't realize they were going for the crucifixion of Jesus as their savior. They thought Jesus was going to the city of David to sit on the throne of David and to overthrow the Romans who held them hostage. They did not realize that before Jesus could come as king, he had to be offered as the suffering servant for the sins of the world. On this day, Jesus presented himself as the king. On that day, many responded from the crowds that surrounded him with praise, with adoration, But there were those amongst the crowds who rejected him and they desired to rule their own lives. Not too much different than what we have today. People who reject Christ, who reject reject Christ's authority, are rejecting him as King Jesus because they think they're the captain of their own ship. They want to have control. I want to ask you tonight, what is your response to King Jesus? What has been your response to King Jesus? Because Jesus is the king. You can trust him for leadership in your life. Have you you recognized Jesus as the king of kings and welcomed him into your life? I pray that you would prayerfully consider if there's any area of your life that you need to submit to him, submit to his authority as your king. Ask yourself the question, what can you do to give him praise and honor today? That was Monday, full day. Tuesday, Luke 19, 45 to 46, tells us that this is when Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple. It tells us that Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out those who were selling in the temple. (laughs) Supposed to be a holy place saying to them, it is written, in my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Well, who were these money changers that Jesus drove out? When the New Testament times, a lot of corrupt priests engaged in this shady business because they wanted a profit. They wanted to profit financially from those who were required by law to come and to pay a temple tax. The problem was foreign coins were not accepted. So if you're from anywhere else, you had to bring your foreign coins to the temple. And then these guys were so kind as to give you a wonderful exchange rate, I'm sure. Okay. They ripped the people off is what they did. The temple vendors that Jesus drove out were also overcharging the travelers because they needed to purchase a sacrificial animal, because they were there to sacrifice uh, 
an animal. And this basically was an exploitation of the foreigners in the land. And that was forbidden by God's law in and of itself. And so when Jesus saw this practice going on, it really stirred up in his heart a righteous anger. And it says that he kicked out the money changers with a whip in his hand. Think about that. How many times do you see a picture of Jesus doing that? That's hardly turn the other cheek, right? I mean, where's that coming from? See, Jesus was not some wimpy rabbi who roamed through the countryside picking daisies and saying nice things to people. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, my friends. Somebody has said this, if anyone ever asks you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. (laughs) We don't hear that today. When you hear the name Jesus, what's the first word that comes to your mind? A lot of people would say loving. A lot of people would say compassionate. A lot of people would say all-powerful. But I imagine there's no one, there's one word that isn't on the top of the list. Intolerant. We don't view Jesus as intolerant. To describe the Son of God as intolerant would almost border on blasphemy in our society today. And in most of our churches, I should say. Because we've confused the the Jesus of our imagination with the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who actually existed. But Jesus is, make no mistake, intolerant of religious leaders who take advantage of people who want to worship God. We've talked about this in detail on our study as we went through Jude on Wednesday nights and expose the false teachers. God is not very gracious at all with those who deliberately malign the truth. There are times when our Lord Jesus got angry, but there's a difference between Jesus' anger and our anger, isn't there? Jesus became angry when other people were being mistreated or when God's reputation was being dishonored. We don't see anywhere in Scripture where Jesus became angry over his own mistreatment. And trust me, he was mistreated. That's what righteous indignation is all about. Righteous anger is getting anger about injustices committed against others, or dishonoring God's reputation. And so Jesus' response to these religious leaders is really a model for how we should respond when we find ourselves in the hot seat. And make no mistake about it, if you're a follower of Christ here tonight, you're going to face challenges. You're going to face questions about your faith. That's why the Bible encourages us to be ready to give an answer, right, for the hope that lies within us. When the time comes, how should we respond? Well, like Jesus, we should respond by being mindful of others, but being biblical in our answers and courageous as we stand up for what is right. And because Jesus stood up against sin and corruption... We all can courageously stand up for what's right. 
Ask yourself this question. Do you stand up for those who are being treated unjustly? What can you do to help people of all backgrounds feel welcome, even here, to worship God? Who can you invite to join you at church this Sunday? That was Tuesday. On Wednesday, Jesus talked with the religious leaders once again at the temple. He kind of got them a little upset, and they wanted to have another meeting with him. So on Wednesday, Jesus went back to the temple. The religious leaders demanded, basically, who gave you the authority to drive out our money changers and claim you're the Messiah? They were upset. They were losing cash. They were very upset. And Jesus replied this in Matthew 21, verses 24 and 25, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I love this, kind of like a riddle, right, with Jesus, I will also tell you by what authority I do those things. And then he says this, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? So to their question, he poses a question. And he's basically telling them, if you can answer my question, I'll answer your question. John the Baptist was very popular in the day, but he was executed because of his prophetic ministry, and the religious leaders understood the dilemma they were in. Jesus painted them in a corner, as he often did, and they reasoned this in their hearts. They said, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe in him? But if we say from men, we fear the people. For they all regarded John as a prophet. And they didn't know what to say to Jesus' question. So they answered him in verse 27. We do not know. <laughs> in other words, we don't know. We can't answer. That's, that's a pretty big deal for a religious leader to admit their own ignorance. But Jesus didn't let him off the hook. Look at what he says in verse 27. He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. <laughs> Remember the agreement? You answer my question, I'll answer yours. He went on to condemn the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. On the same day, he delivered the Olivet Discourse, giving us a clear outline of the events that would precede his future return. This is the day that Judas planned the betrayal of Jesus. The Jewish authorities were looking for a way to arrest Jesus secretly. And they did it in front of everybody. Everybody get upset. So they had to figure out a way to do it secretly. And on Wednesday, opportunity came knocking at their door. The opportunity was named who? Judas. Luke 22.3 says, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. What's interesting about this was he was counted among the disciples. And you look back at Luke 6, it shows Jesus praying for wisdom before he made the huge decision to select his 12 apostles. Well, guess what? One of his choices was who? Judas. That leaves your head scratching, thinking, how how can this be? We may think, you know what, Jesus, maybe you should have prayed a little bit longer because this didn't work out too good. But you know what? This was all part of God's plan to bring about Jesus' purpose for coming. In Luke 
It, t- it tells us, it says he went away, verse, 20, uh, verse 4 and 6 of 22, he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and he began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Satan looked for the weak point. He always looks for the weak link. He always looks for the the weakest person in the group. He wanted to use Judas for his own purpose, he thought. And the point of Judas's vulnerability was his greed. It was his greed. Remember, he was the treasurer for the twelve. Interesting. In Matthew 26, 15, we see Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Wow. And more than 700 years before this event happened, the prophet Zechariah foretold that the Messiah would be, to be betrayed for, guess what? 30 pieces of silver. Hundreds of years before this happened. Zechariah eleven twelve. If it is good in your sight, give me my wages, but if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. People sometimes ask, well, do you think Judas was a Christian? I've had that question asked me. Absolutely not. He was a, what the Bible calls a tear among the wheat. A tear, T-A-R-E, is a plant that looks like wheat, very much like wheat. It grows right alongside the wheat. It's hard to distinguish it from the wheat. It even blooms like wheat, but only for a season. In Matthew 13, Jesus talked about the spiritual wheat and the spiritual tares, believers and unbelievers who exist side by side. Judas was a tare. He was an unbeliever. They appear alike, but one is real and the other is fake. That was Judas. He was a fake. He was a fraud. He was a fake follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about that. Jesus chose him. He spent time with him. Jesus could have been consumed with bitterness toward Judas, but he wasn't. As a matter of fact, if you look at their interactions right up until his betrayal, Jesus is constantly giving Judas an opportunity to repent. Sure you want to do this? Sure you want to do this? Constantly. He realized that Judas was simply a tool that God was using to accomplish his purpose. So he wasn't bitter toward Judas. How do we apply this? Perhaps someone in your life has betrayed you. It's easy to become so focused on their offense that we forget God is bigger than they are. We must remember that God can use people's worst actions toward us for our good and for his glory. And because Jesus knows the future, you can be confident that he is in control over all these things. Well, what encouragement does this give us? If we know Jesus, we know that he knows the events of the end times. Stop and ask yourself, do you tend to focus on the things of this world? 
Or are you looking forward to his return? Are you anticipating the return of Christ? If you're bitter towards someone who has hurt you or betrayed you, what are you called to do? You're called to confess that to God and to thank him for even using that person in your life to accomplish his purpose. That's a hard prayer to pray when someone has crossed you. On Thursday, moving on through the week, Jesus' disciples prepared the Passover lamb. They begin to celebrate, get ready to celebrate the Passover. Now remember, Jerusalem at this time of the year was crowded. And so the disciples asked Jesus in, in Mark 14, 12, where do you want us to go to prepare for you to eat the Passover? We've got to get a reservation, Jesus. These places are filling up. It was customary for people to rent out maybe even an extra room in their house for people who needed a place to celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus gave his disciples this instruction in Luke 22.10. He says, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. I mean, that was not an odd thing for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water. This is how specific this is. Follow him into the house that he enters. I mean, would that take a step of faith on your part? It would me. It doesn't even say talk to him. It just says follow him into his house. And verse 13 goes on. It says, and they found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Once again, following Christ takes what? Faith. It takes steps of faith. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were probably close to 2.6 million Jews in Jerusalem at this time. Everyone came there to celebrate the Passover. And if every family had their own lamb that had to be sacrificed for the Passover, if you do the math, that meant there was probably about 256,000 lambs to be sacrificed. Now this this Easter, this this Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be having lamb for dinner in the afternoon. This was a common practice. But can you imagine 256,000 lambs being sacrificed? We'll come back to that in a moment, the way they celebrated the Passover meal. That brings us to Friday, Good Friday. Jesus prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane because Jesus and his disciples had finished their Passover meal probably around midnight on Friday. And they, they, they uh, then left the upper room and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And while the disciples slept, what did Jesus do? He prayed. Mark 14, 3 uh, tells us, And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by the hour that he was anticipating going to the cross. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That was his request. But he did say, yet not what I will, but what you will. Surely, Jesus, in his humanity, he dreaded the physical agony that awaited him at the cross. I mean, you're talking about human torture times 10 when someone was crucified. What led up to the cross was maybe even worse than hanging on the cross. 
being flogged and having skin ripped off your back by whips, having your your beard pulled out, a crown of thorns smashed down upon your skull. But more than that, more than the physical agony, I honestly believe Jesus dreaded being separated from his Father by our sins. The spiritual separation that was about to take place, we don't understand this, but it says it did. He's saying, Father, if there's any other way, if you have another door, something, you know, come up with another plan, please let this experience pass me by. He did not desire this at this point in time. And he petitioned God. And Jesus prayed, and guess what? Heaven was silent. Heaven was silent. You could hear a pin drop. God said absolutely nothing to his son's request because there was no other way to atone for the sins that we have. And you say, well, couldn't have Jesus, somehow he couldn't have saved himself? Yeah, he could have saved himself, but then he wouldn't have saved us. (laughs) He couldn't save himself and us. There was a choice that had to be made. And he chose to go to the cross willingly because there's no other way for us to have the forgiveness of our sins. And when Jesus settled the matter in his own heart, Through prayer, he got up with confidence and determination to face the cross. And that set the stage for the greatest betrayal he would ever experience. Jesus was betrayed and he was arrested. Around one o'clock in the morning, their time in Gethsemane was interrupted when a group of Jewish and Roman officials came with torches and swords, and placed Jesus under arrest. In Luke 22, we read this while he was still speaking. Behold, a crowd came, and one was called Judas, one of the twelve, was presiding, was presiding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? You're really going to go through with this, Judas. Still petitioning him. Because earlier we know that Judas had left the Last Supper early once he knew where Jesus was going, according to his scheme, and he told the Jewish officials so they could arrest him secretly, away from the crowds. What's interesting in Matthew, the Matthew account in verse 56 of chapter 26, it ends this way. Then all the disciples left him and fled. All of the disciples left him and fled. Where did they take Jesus from the garden? They took him to the house of the high priest, where Jesus began a series of six trials, three religious trials, three civil trials, before he was crucified at 9 a.m. He was tried by the religious leaders and the Romans. He was taken from, taken to the home of the high priest Caiaphas. It was probably a place where both Annas and Caiaphas, his father-in-law, and the high priest Emeritus and Caiaphas, they all lived. 
Luke does not record the first trial of Jesus before Annas. It was probably a very brief interchange. He picks up with the trial before Caiaphas, which probably went from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Peter was with the others in the courtyard of the high priest's home. And that's where we see the three denials that took place that were prophesied by our Lord to Peter himself. In Luke 22, 56 and 57, a servant girl seeing Peter as he sat by the firelight and looking intently at him said, this man was with him too. But Peter denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. Another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, I do not know what you are talking about. And the moment he uttered those words, the moment those words left Peter's mouth, the rooster crowed. And when Peter denied him, Jesus, the third time, Jesus turned through the courtyard gates where he was standing and he looked into Peter's eyes. Can you imagine? And it says, Peter remembered (laughs) the Lord's prediction hours earlier in the upper room. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And as a result of that, verse 62 says that Peter wept bitterly. What a night it had been for the Lord. In only a few hours, he experienced an intense temptation to disobey God, to find a way out. He experienced a betrayal by someone close to him. And then he he experienced the abandonment by everyone close to him. I would say that's a bad day. (laughs) After the high priests finished their trials, Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod Antipas, and Pilate again. All six of these trials, by the way, were illegal in some way or another. For example, according to Jewish law, you could hear evidence against someone only in the daytime, yet all of Jesus' trials took place at night. Both Jewish and Roman law said anyone charged with a capital crime should needs to have an attorney present, someone to represent them, but no attorney was present for Jesus. It was a miscarriage of justice as far as you could see. And yet God was still working through man's evil to achieve his good because that's the God we serve. Jesus, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. He died at 3 p.m. and he was buried. In Luke 23, we find the description of Jesus' crucifixion, and that's what was read for us. And you think that this is the death that our Lord and Savior died, this excruciating physical pain. It was nothing compared to the spiritual pain of bearing our sins, of experiencing separation from God, His Father. How can we ever thank God enough for what He has done for us? I think the only way to respond is to express our gratitude for what Jesus did for us on that horrible, on that 
wondrous cross out of which comes our salvation is to have hearts of praise. Jewish law, by the way, said the Passover lambs must be sacrificed between 3 and 5 p.m. on the day of preparation for the Passover. So think of the scene on that Friday. Millions of Jews are packed into Jerusalem. They're waiting for their appointed hour, their appointment where the priests would sacrifice their lamb. And at 3 p.m., the very time that hundreds of thousands of innocent lambs were being slain in the temple, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the perfect Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, cried out on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus is our Passover Lamb. And it's through faith in him that we should receive a reprieve from God's judgment. God says to everyone, every one of us, when I see the blood of Christ on your life, I will pass over. You will not need to fear my judgment because you are are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's the power of Christ's work on the cross. And because Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, you can walk in forgiveness and freedom. Are you living your life as if you had been freed from the power of sin? What can you do today to express your gratitude for what Jesus did for you on the cross? We're coming to our communion time. And I pray that you would be willing to spend some time personally in prayer, even here in this place. It's just the quietness of this moment. Thanking Jesus for paying your debt of sin so that you can walk in freedom today. Jesus, that on that night when he celebrated his Passover in the upper room, that night when Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal, for 1,300 years the Passover meal had pointed back to Israel's physical deliverance from Egypt. And there's different aspects of the the meal that draw their attention back to that time. The first cup was blessed by the Father, followed by herbs and a dipping sauce. The second cup was followed by an explanation of the, the meaning of the Passover and the singing of a halal, a praise psalm, usually Psalm 113 or 114. The third cup followed the blessing and breaking of the unleavened bread and the meal of the lamb. The final cup followed the singing of more halal psalms, probably Psalms 115 to 118. Each element of the Passover meal was important. The bitter herbs were symbolic of the bitter suffering of the Israelites in Egypt. The paste made of fruits and nuts symbolized the mortar used between the bricks the Israelites made in Egypt. And of course, the lamb. The lamb represented the sacrifice that had to be made for sins. See, what we call the Lord's Supper, when Jesus attached new meaning to those elements, we call it the Lord's Supper. They called it Passover. And it tells us in Luke 
22, 19, And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread Jesus took was unleavened. They didn't have time to wait for the rising of bread. (laughs) But there's another reason for the bread to be unleavened. Because leaven, in the Old Testament, leaven represented Christ. It had, it had to be without leaven, without sin. The bread represents that Jesus was willing to take on bodily form to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And then they would take the cup. The cup poured out for you is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, the scriptures say. The old covenant was based on work, but God said in the old covenant, he said, obey my rules and you'll find favor with me. The the problem was no one could obey the rules of God because we're all sinners. Matter of fact, Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sins. Why did God have the Israelites do all these sacrifices to make them long for a future when this once-for-all sacrifice that would forevermore remove their sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's why Jesus said, this cup now represents the new covenant based not on your works, but on my grace demonstrated by my blood shed for you. What Jesus said that night, some 2,000 years ago, he's saying to us here this evening, My body, my blood is being offered for you. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus is saying, I'm ready to forgive you if you will turn your heart to me. And because Jesus is your Passover lamb, you can know that your sins are forgiven. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts for our communion time here tonight. And as we spend some time singing some songs and then also just partaking of communion as a family or as individuals, we're just going to ask after the next song that you start coming down and taking a cup of the juice and the bread and going back to your seat and you praying before the Lord. Pray with your spouse, you can pray with your family, you can pray as an individual. And you ask God to bless these elements, these symbols of his grace in our lives to your body. Father, we thank you and we we ask you to bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen.